I can do things that wet without asking anybody, even my Coney wife. Coney Island, world's biggest barrel of fun. Anywhere else your imagination takes you. Okay, we've done that now, Mark. You get the whole show now, you hurry, hurry, hurry. Anything's possible at Disneyland. Welcome aboard the Themed Attraction Podcast, where we take you for a ride through the wonderful world of theme park design, that is. You've just cast off for an exciting adventure to discover the who, what, why, and how they did it via in-depth discussions with theme park industry masters of the craft. I'm your skipper, Freddie Martin, and with me, as always, is theme park designer, master planner, and spatial storyteller from Storyland Studios, Mel McGowan. Where are we off to today, Mel? Right today, uh, we're taking a break here at Storyland Studios from actually getting to master plan uh, an actual experimental prototype community of tomorrow <laughs> uh, with a good friend, an urban planner, author, historian, and futurist, Sam Genoway. Uh, Sam's just one of those unique guys uh, who could truly be classified as a guru, and his experience and study of theme parks uh, as an art form. Uh, I, I think is going to provide some real unique insights on how uh, there's some real-world implications uh, for theme parks, uh, not just inside the gates of a theme park or a fun park, but in the everyday places where we actually do life. Uh, I think of this as kind of imagineering, but beyond the berm, uh, kind of like what Walt Disney actually thought about doing when he first dreamed of a, of a experimental city of tomorrow. Yeah, not only that, Sam has written extensively on the backstory between behind Universal and Disney parks, so we'll definitely get into that a bit as well. Okay, folks, keep your hands, arms, feet, and legs inside the boat, because episode four is about to leave the dock. Hit it, Sam. Yeah, so welcome back, Mel. I wanted to, um, you know, sort of dig into the idea that there's places, especially here in L.A., we have places like the Grove or the Americana, and it's these wonderful uh, outdoor malls and gathering places for people uh, here in Los Angeles. Um, But sometimes those places are a lot more like going to a Disney park than they are like a shopping mall, right? Yeah, there's definitely been an influence, I think, of uh, originally of Hollywood backlots onto Disneyland and, th- and the creation of theme parks. But now we're seeing that from theme parks, uh, again, the pixie dust kind of bleeding out <laughs> beyond the berm and, and actually impacting some of the, the places we do life uh, every day, you know, where we shop and spend time. I know where, where my kids do, you know, birthdays and, and uh, family meals. Yeah, that's right. You know, today, like I, you start to see those theme park sensibilities. Uh, are those types of things, if, if, you, if you don't have a business that isn't creating a place for people to feel at home, enjoying themselves, or sort of uh, taking them to another place, do you think businesses these days are sort of um, leaving something on the table by not bringing design into their spaces? Well, uh, yeah, there's definitely something called the design differential, and that's certainly uh, a lot of what is keeping us really busy is helping uh, both uh, for-profit companies, corporations, as well as nonprofit clients uh, kind of benefit from that uh, economic return on investment, that great uh, placemaking and design and spatial storytelling can, can really bring them. Yeah, I mean, you just think about places like just the Starbucks motif that they they want to give you that sense of coming to a place that's better than the normal coffee shop down the street. It's a destination. 
Yeah, it can, I mean, definitely be applied at any scale from uh, we're doing a barbers and beers <laughs> place, uh, you know, an individual retail tenant uh, all the way up to uh, something at the scale of an entire town, which is what we're working on today. Yeah, that's awesome. So tell me about this project, because we're going to go into it a little bit with Sam when we get him, get the interview going. But uh, tell me a little bit about that so we have some context. Oh, sure. Yeah. A good friend of ours, uh, Christian Moran, who, again, is uh, hopefully going to be a future guest, uh, is part of a, a, a nonprofit foundation called Grant Town, who uh, is really about changing the world, basically. Um, and, you know, their stated purpose is literally to help build a world where every man, woman and child on Earth is fed, clothed, housed and educated by the end of it, the 21st century. No small goal, uh, but again, we've been <laughs> hired to, to um, actually develop uh, kind of a post-millennium, you know, post-millennium 21st century version uh, of uh, some of, uh, you know, a parallel to Walt Disney's uh, thinking behind that Epcot idea of an experimental prototype commute of tomorrow, not as a kind of a, uh, a theme park, but but literally as a functioning uh, experimental neighborhood that, that would also serve as a world class uh, visitor destination for people from around the world to kind of get to check out uh, and not just read or not just watch YouTube videos, but actually check out the latest innovations in in transportation, education, medicine, uh, energy, um, uh, and environmental management. So we're we're thrilled to be able to play in a pretty uh, unique sandbox and and to to actually get to do that with uh, great people like Sam Genway. Yeah, I my jaw is on the floor. I mean, the great dream of seeing something like Epcot really come true is is uh, happening like within these walls, which is pretty exciting. So um, that's why we asked Sam Genoway to come out and join us in conversation about the growth of experiential design, spatial storytelling outside the gates of the theme parks, as well as inside. So let's get right into it. Here it is, our interview with author and urban planner, Sam Genoway. So great to break out, Sam, and uh, be with you. Um, we're breaking away from a quick work session on a, a kind of a fun little project. Uh, I think uh, I couldn't imagine a, a better guy on the planet to, to be part of this in, in some way, shape, or form. Um, I think I first read your book, Sam, on Walt's uh, take on uh, the city of tomorrow. And today we're actually getting to play in that sandbox a little bit. I think it's absolutely marvelous. You know, it's uh, uh, one of the great things about Walt Disney is that when he came up with ideas, they tended to be rather timeless, rather classic. And it was kind of unfortunate to see that the his version of Epcot got shelved, but it's exciting to see that it may come back alive and it may be uh, even more relevant, more important now than ever. So yeah, this is this is a real exciting project. Well, I was just curious what parallels you saw between, um, you know, Walt's take on uh, Epcot as a city uh, and uh, our GTEC project as we're working on it, uh, you know, and just getting that first impression. Well, you know, one of the things that was really great about Epcot and, and one of the reasons why I think it was sort of tragic that it never got built was that it was really based on something that we don't really have much these days or we're really quite lacking, which is optimism. Um, um, uh, Walt Disney was an optimal behaviorist. That's what Ray Bradbury called him, which was mm -hmm. he wasn't just a believer that there's going to be a better future, but that if you do 
everything that you do with the full heart and love and you get it done at the end of the day, at the end of the week, at the end of the year, you can reflect upon what you've done and it's amazing what you've accomplished. That's optimal behaviorism. And he wanted to create a community that that induced optimal behaviorism and all of the participants uh, that lived in the community. And, and that's what Epcot was really about. And it was an optimistic statement that technology, when used correctly uh, and tested by people, can make Make everyone's lives better, and this project does that sort of thing, and it and it points a, a path forward. And I'm sure that once people have visited, you're going to go back, and you're going to be really inspired, and you're going to ask the question, uh, "Well, why can't we do some of this in my community?" You know, I, I saw this over there. This doesn't seem too odd. We could do that over here in our community, and that's exactly what Walt Epcot was supposed to be: is that you would go to it thinking you're going on a vacation experience, but you would come home inspired and become a project champion for better change within your community um, using some of the things that you saw demonstrated on your on your vacation so you know it's it's fun it's been it's been what decades and there's been since then some proposals for utopian communities but they weren't based on this classical use of empirical data that this the gtech project is so yeah it's cool it's very cool yeah, it's so fun uh, being with Sam just because um, we're both odd ducks, you know, that are both, uh, I think, at, at a, some level resonate with uh, Walt Disney's uh, kind of take on this optimistic uh, choice of, uh, of looking at tomorrow, um, but also fusing that somehow with uh, the power of story with uh, classic spaces. Uh, you know, I know Walt was inspired by some of his World War One. Uh, sojourn through Europe, uh, you know, and seeing these kind of medieval villages and, and what have you. But again, to also have that share that urban planning background with you. Um, yeah. And in, in, um, in, I think a lot of our recent work, you know, for me as a, a spatial storyteller working on uh, theme parks and, uh, and some of the even sacred space work that we do, um, not to necessarily get to to go as deep into the the actual urban planning and mm-hmm. with this project to, to actually look at an experimental community that would be uh, kind of a kind of a, a cellular scale you know that that right. could actually grow into a, a town and then ultimately a city has been uh, really fascinating well one of the things I get concerned about when when people ask me to look at these type of large um, large scale plans and stuff like that is that that sometimes the designers are trying to be smarter than the people that they serve. And when that ends up happening is that they create um, these very lifeless, dull spaces that don't seem to, to resonate with folks. A good example of this would be Grand Avenue in downtown Los Angeles. You've got some incredible world-class architecture. You've got the Walt Disney Concert Hall. You've got the Broad Museum. You've got uh, the, the Museum of Contemporary Art, all based on this absolutely wonderful boulevard with the services that are below. But even with all of this activity, with all these cultural activities in one space, the place doesn't feel like anything other than a super clean street. It doesn't make you want to spend time or have a conversation. It's not exactly as Sean Sellis say. <laughs> no, no. Or, you know, it's not like, um, you know, we, we, we forget that one of the greatest uh, public spaces in the world is Plaza San Marco in, in Venice. Mm-hmm. And we forget the fact that it took 800 years mm-hmm. to get it the way that it is today. The buildings took 800 years to get built around the plaza. But the core 
activity, which was, it was the transit node. It was the pathway that everybody had to pass through on their way to someplace else. It's that activity is what created the success of the facility. So yeah, I, I, the, what's, what's neat about this project is that it's based really on where Walt Disney came from, an untrained architect, which was a guy who traveled everywhere in the world because he owned a movie studio so he could do that. Um, he had an incredible memory uh, his daughter, Diane, told me when we had lunch once that she noticed in the after World War II, his, her dad would walk a street and count steps and then write it in a little book. And, um, and she started noticing what he was doing is he was measuring the width of streets that he really liked. And if you look at it, the width of the street at the Burbank studio is too small for cars, really. It's meant for bicycles and for pedestrians. He wanted to create the essence of a street without actually creating a street. And he didn't want it to look like a sidewalk because people tend to walk in the street, not on sidewalks. So um, uh, it's based on this empirical data Data. And the GTEC project is based on components that if you were to break them apart, n everything already exists someplace. It's nothing that you're creating that's really, really weird or new. You're just packaging them in such a way where they function really well. One plus one can equal three when it's uh, the right <laughs> assemblage. <laughs> I never thought of it that way, but yeah, that's true. That is, that's true. That, that you know, it's, it's, it's every it's, decision, every detail marching towards it's, that it's, same. It's internal. the Christopher Alexander concept of a higher degree of life, that everything has a degree of life and it's how you put the degrees of, it's how you add these and how you put the components together that gives you a higher degree of life. And when you achieve the highest degree of life, you have that quality without a name, which is that you're standing within a space. You don't know why, you can't describe it, but the hair in the back of your neck is standing up. You feel like this is exactly where you should be. It's the It's the feeling that I think that any Disneyland Park fan gets the moment that you walk into the town square initially and then the hub, uh, or you sit on the Wizard of Bra's porch, or if you're a Walt Disney World fan, it's that higher degree of life is when you sit on the, the two chairs, the rocking chairs behind the Hall of Presidents, and you're slightly away from all the traffic within Liberty Square, but you're still involved with it. In it that's the higher degree of life you know there's it, it, it in, in most theme good theme parks there's at least a couple of spaces ideally that you have that in most great churches there's a space that you pr transport yourself from the real world to the sacred space and it makes you pause and humble and recognize that you are in that higher degree of life space if a sacred space doesn't exist that like that you've kind of failed as a designer right <laughs> right yeah yeah so so those are those are the things and i can see multiple opportunities and the, the stuff that you showed me for that. Well, I just, I'm fascinated by the idea of the third place and how um, in, in Los Angeles, you mentioned, you know, Los Angeles is a tough place to live yeah. and be like, feel like you have a place within it. it. It's functional. It's hugely functional, but it's just difficult to find uh, life in there. And so, so Starbucks become the holy places where people want to gather exactly, and be yeah. between work and home. And I'd love to uh, hear you guys talk about it. Like you, you mentioned Venice, you know, these are, these are places in the world that people gather to because of that back of the head 
hair on the back of the neck. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a there's a bargain that, that has to be made, and the bargain is is that the higher the density, that is, that the more people living within an area, and the smaller the living accommodations, the bargain is is that you then have to give them extended cultural uh, uh, cultural amenities. Mm-hmm. In other words, the ability to not necessarily have to be within your house, but to participate within community. So, um, and and in Los Angeles, the way that Los Angeles was organized originally uh, is to be everything that the East Coast wasn't. So we went into this lower density. Everybody had a backyard. Everybody had a front yard. We had private space. Um, that so we didn't need to have a lot of parks. We were surrounded by public space. We were surrounded by mountains. We were surrounded by beaches. So we had all the open space that we wanted, and then we had our own personal open space. So we didn't have much in the way of open space within the urban core. But that's changed as Los Angeles becomes a denser and denser city, and we get more and more dwelling units and more and more compact areas. We have a greater need for these social spaces, and we don't really have those. And and. And um, Charles Moore, the architect um, and philosopher, wrote that in Los Angeles, we pay for the public life. And that is that we pay a membership fee to go to Disneyland or to Huntington Library or to um, whatever private club that we belong to so that that's our public space. You kind of recognize that Walt Disney kind of was scratching that itch that we all have as a herd species to to collect. That's right. And and that was whole Walt's idea, really. And if you look at a lot of the earliest uh, discussions of Disneyland, it was to create a town center that didn't exist in a city that didn't have a town center. He wanted to create that kind of public space why he kept um, the entrance price really, really low, but he still had an entrance price so that it would kind of keep out the riffraff. You had to make a commitment to at least spend a dollar or whatever it was at the time, and that was enough of a commitment to weed Same out. Same reason Walter not ended up needing to put up a gate. Exactly, the exactly. <laughs> but, but in both cases, they always kept the general admission very low. If it wasn't for that, I would have never gotten to where I am today. It's because Walt Disney had a very low general admission price that my mom and a lower blue collar family, lower blue collar, blue class family that I grew up in, my mom could afford to drive us to Disneyland. She could afford to pay for us to go into Disneyland, to let my two older brothers go run around, but we could never afford the food and we could never afford to go on any of the rides. So I kept going on the same four rides all the time. And she was kind enough to do this fairly often. We went about once a month as just sort of a release for my brothers mostly to run around. And I was much younger, so I hung out with her. And so that's why I saw Carousel of Progress so often and Great <laughs> Moments with Mr. Lincoln and um, Circle Vision, because those got, were the- Got embedded f- in your DNA. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's that's why I became what I am today. You know, whatever that is. So, um, so yeah. I, 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 it's and 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 so that this becomes more and more important. And and the, the, this plan does that. This plan assumes that people are going to live in smaller private spaces, but they're going to have incredible social amenities uh, that's going to make up for it. Well, I can't wait to share more with you in the future. Maybe on a future podcast, we'll have our mutual friend Christian Moran, uh, one of our clients and collaborators, uh, who actually did that you know great documentary on yeah. Walt's uh, take on on tomorrow and futurism um, but man Sam I've been a fan of yours for a pretty long time as you well know from our first uh, yeah. uh, little tiki bar hangout uh, <laughs> at Trader Sam's and um, I think um, you know there's probably some of our listeners that may not uh, understand the epicness that uh, stands before me that is Sam Genoway. Uh and um, you know again to 
to have a, a true guru. You know, it's not something you get to run into every day. This is why uh, Mel has so many friends, by the way. No, but seriously, I mean, uh, to be as prolific of, a, of an author, a historian, but actually to have a, a legitimate career as a, a paid consultant, you know, an urban planner. Uh, and then, uh, and then, man, the, the amazing journey that you're on right now. Um, Gosh, do you mind just giving us a, a quick uh, the Sam Genway story? Sure, you know, sure. I know you were working on another biography, but but let's forget that. Let's yeah. hear your biography. You know? oh, sure. Um, um, God, I, I'm I'm blushing. That's very nice. Thank you very much for the comments. Uh, I'm uh, well. I'm Sam Genway, and I'm an urban planner by training. I uh, I spent actually about 25 years in the music industry uh, before That's that. Nice. I, I ran a record company. I ran a radio station, and I was in, in a Chicago. death rock band. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I used to tour with Def Leppard and Bon Jovi and, and people like that for a little while. So I, I, I had that line. And you were the enemy because uh, back in my day, everybody only cared about glam bands, and yeah, you know. And so there were it was few and far between the the zombie zoo clubs oh, no, of the no. world that would allow, I was the allow our band in. I was, the, I was one of the alternative music guys over oh, awesome. Records. So I was, you know, I was. The guy, I knew I liked you for. I, I knew I was. I was the guy who was doing stage dives, what I called old man stage dives for the mighty. <laughs> Mighty Boss Tones, the re, the ska band, and that, that what I mean by the old man is I didn't have to fight my way up on the stage. I just used my backstage pass, come around the front, and then jump out into the audience. It's very, very, very fun. Um, so uh, I, I I was an urban planner, and I I've done a lot of urban planning consulting, mostly public communications, um, translating, trying to um, inspire people through this process of collaborative planning. And collaborative planning assumes that those who live, work, and play within a community are the real experts of that community. So as design professionals, you can see how this all links and everything else. As design professionals, uh, I always thought it was my job is to first be very curious, get inside people's heads, uh, pull it from their lips. That's really one of my specialties doing over a thousand community workshops and charrettes on over 180 projects. Uh, then through that curiosity, a sense of clarity, let's make sure we're all on the same page. We all share the same mission because when people have clarity of mission, they will do whatever it takes to accomplish that. Then um, creativity. It's remarkable. You know, a lot of times people have brilliant ideas. They just don't know how to articulate them very well. So if you work with them, um, you can get some really brilliant ideas. And plus our experience, we can share ideas. And then finally, confidence. Because as a consultant, I was always going to be leaving a project before it was ultimately done. So I needed to identify members of the community that would be so inspired that they would be the ones to get the thing accomplished because I hated just doing plans for the sake of plans. So um, I was doing urban planning uh, when the economy kind of slowed down, uh, especially the idea of visioning was becoming very difficult. I thought, well, it's time to write a book. So I was going to write a book about Christopher Alexander, who's a great architect and philosopher of pattern language. Everybody should check him out. Um, and it was about empirical data, because ultimately he's a guy who just watched and saw how civilization worked and then figured out a way of combining the best of the best. And I like Walt, he was a good synthesizer. Is it, exactly. And that's and then I thought, well, Christopher Alexander's pretty esoteric, but Walt Disney isn't. And Walt Disney is the same way. He wasn't trained. He had this amazing memory and he would remember the best. And then when he decided to start doing a theme park 
park and start doing an amusement park. That was his inspiration was I was going to bring basically the best of my vacations and work travel. He, like, and bring, he bought like Greenfield Village uh, right? as Main Street, Knott's Berry Farm as Frontierland, exactly. Tivoli Ex- Gardens as Fantasyland. Exactly. And, you know, and you get it. 1939 World's Fair is uh, World of Tomorrow. Exactly. You get it. And then a lot of people don't understand that. A lot of people think that, oh, this was all brand new and stuff. And it wasn't. It was really the best of things that already existed just brought together in, in such a way where it seemed new and different. But it's one of the reasons why Disneyland resonated so immediately is because everybody experienced oddly something like that somewhere else. So when they got there, it wasn't so strange that it was uncomfortable. It was strange that it became endearing. Mm-hmm. So um, so I, I, I wrote Walt Disney and the Promise of Progress City, and that's been the, the gift that keeps on giving. And it got me some work at, for, for WDI. So thank you all very much over there. So I got to work for them a little bit on a consulting project. And then... Um, uh, it sold well enough that the unofficial guide guys, Len Testa and, and Bob Sellinger, uh, asked me to do a Disneyland history book. So I did the Disneyland story, the unofficial guide, which is um, the most annotated Disney book, I believe, that is out there with like 750 citations. Uh, so well researched. Yeah, it was, because the, it was because we were getting to a point that even the Walt Disney Company was making up history that didn't actually exist. Uh-huh. And so I really wanted to try to, in one place, get the facts down then and the approach of treating it as a biography of, of Disneyland as a living thank you and uh, that that was so original that so came great. from um, that was inspired by that lunch with Diane I was Diane Disney Miller I was having um, I was doing a talk uh, about the Mineral King Ski Resort at the Walt Disney Family Museum the Diane uh, her husband her husband Tom Ronnie oh, pardon me Ronnie yeah Ron Miller Ron Miller <laughs> the most humble man in the world who shouldn't be because he did so many great things yeah. and he's just too damn humble for his own good and we were supposed to go to a, 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 and, exactly and Jeff a Curdy, typical Hollywood mogul personality yeah and it was Jeff Curdy and David Price and we were supposed to go to a restaurant before the talk and the restaurant lost her reservation so we had to go back to the museum which was great because they go well do you like chili and I'm going yeah I love chili so we sat around the conference table and we talked and I started talking to her about this um, idea that I had and I said It seems to me that your dad sort of thought of Disneyland from everything that I've seen, kind of like it was your younger brother. And she's going, yeah, that was it. That was it. Because it's like he treated it just like he treated us. If it wasn't quite right, he would figure out a way of adjusting it. And then that's what I thought. Well, you know, there's been more than enough Disneyland books, so nobody needed another one. Um, But as I treated it like a biography, what I turned out to be amazed was if you really think about it, Walt died when the kid was only 11. It should have died with him because it was a very personal project. Really, there's very, very few very personal projects that have succeeded beyond the life of the guy who started it. But not only it succeeded, but it thrived. And that made me realize that, that Walt taught his child good values. And when they stick to the good values, the park tends to succeed. And then when they did like DCA 1.0 and they decided to be rebellious against dad and his values, <laughs> it didn't succeed. So it started making me understand that there was that a was DNA. the death rock phase. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it started kids. making me realize that there was a DNA about Disneyland that Walt thought. And so that's how that book came about. Then they asked me to do a book about Walt Disney World. But I always thought that Walt Disney World was more of an academic project and not really, I wasn't really interested in it. And I 
recognized that nobody had really written about Universal Studios. So I wrote about Universal Studios because it also was an urban, it was a city and it had a lot of the urban planning stuff that I liked about it. And that was fascinating because I got to talk to, unlike Disneyland, most of the original creators were still alive. Right. So I got to meet all the different people, um, Phil Hedema and and, uh, and who did a lot of the work and Bob Ward and, and Barry Upson, who is just really, for those that are out there, Barry Upson. Start to look at Barry Upson is one of the great names of theme parks. Yeah. Barry Upson, he, he's, he's the master planner for all the Universal Parks, that kind of stuff. Um, and so I got to meet all those guys. So I finished that book, was happy with it, worked out well. They called it Universal versus Disney, which was not what the book is about. And then I got a call from a guy named Jay Stein, who was throughout the Universal book, but I tried for a year to get a hold of Jay and Jay would not return my call. Then said, I don't want to participate. I'm done. I don't have anything to do with it anymore. But busy on the beach, right? Busy on the beach, yeah. He's the only theme park guy that I've ever met that when he retired, he like really retired. He just went off, never got back, threw away most of his stuff, kept only a few things like his little original E.T. head that Steven Spielberg gave him that was part of the ride mock-up. And um, and then he contacted me, Terry Winnick, who's the guy who designed a lot of the great early stuff at Universal Studios had passed away. Really, really neat guy a lot of great stories from terry and um terry had passed away and terry's wife gave jay a copy of my book and so jay wrote me and says hey it's a great book i like it good you did really good research you know there's only one thing missing yeah what is it jay it's me (laughs) yeah well i tried he's going well come up to my house let's talk and so I started doing a series of interviews with Jay and recording interviews with Jay. And it was supposed to be, in a way, an update to the Universal versus Disney book. But the stories were just so good that I ended up writing Jay Bangs, which in a sense is the DNA of the the real DNA. But it but it was also a book not about theme parks, but it was about an organizational culture that does not exist. This was MCA, Music Corporation of America. This was a very small group of Jewish movie moguls who would completely tear each other apart in personally, internally, and then unless an enemy came and then they would group together and they would not only beat the enemy, they would destroy the enemy, they would burn the enemy, they would bury it, they would dance on the grave, they would dig it up again, then they would burn it again and then bury it and then dance on it. I mean, this is the company when Jaws became the biggest movie ever, um, everybody made fun of Sid Scheinberg going, wow, we thought it was going to do better. And that and they were being sincere about that. Um, but, but, you know, when Michael Eisner decided to build Disney MGM Studio based on all the designs that Universal, and I've documented they were based on the designs of Universal, that's when Lou Wasserman, who was pretty non-committal to building in Florida, turned to Jay Stein and said, here's $600 million, bury them. Yeah, right. Yeah. And then that's how, if it wasn't for Michael Eisner making the stupid mistake of taking MCA on, Universal Studios wouldn't have gotten in the theme park business in the big way that they did. And now they're, um, now they have more momentum than the Disney park. So uh, I've been through four books. I also wrote a little bit for the American Planning Association about theme shopping malls in Los Angeles. And I wrote for the American Institute of Architects in Florida about themed architecture for Central Florida and then did some other writing for people I can't talk about. <laughs> well, I got to ask you a, a question. Um, you know, John Jurdy, uh, who yeah. not not so recently passed away, yeah. um, 
but uh, you know had done master plans for everything from Euro Disney to um, city, you know, Universal City, City Walk. Yeah. And um, what's your uh, your impression of his kind of influence the whole uh, you know lifestyle retail entertainment uh, uh, complex? And obviously he was a, he was an architect that uh, went to school with Frank Gehry, and yeah. and yeah. instead of getting the the high commissions with the art museums of the world, got stuck with the the humble typology of shopping centers and places that people actually still gather and and um isn't i think somewhat underrated you know and as a designer but um you know what you know he was definitely a another fan of walt disney's as well what do you what he kind of got stuck in the sort of same box as victor gruen did which is that they were they were much more brilliant than now people give him credit for because uh the the shopping mall has never been looked upon architecturally as something that's important but that's only because a lot of architects are snobs and that's why a lot of architects don't like disney in the theme parks as well they think that they think that the theme parks are sort of beneath them but i always argue have you ever designed anything that resonates with people for as long as main street usa don't think so so until you can show me that you've done work that's superior to that i think i'm going to give some credit to harper goff and the guys who did all that kind of stuff with that said um i think jurde is 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 brilliant and it's been interesting i i i did work for um one thing part company for a short time and and because of my background i i got sent out i did a speech in london and then that got me a gig to be the host for maypick um maypick is the largest um, uh, the, uh, the largest shopping mall conference in the world. It attracts like 7,000 people to Cannes, France. And I, I don't know exactly how I got this gig, but I was the host for the leisure division presentation. So if you go in and there's a trampoline park or a movie theater, virtual reality rides, that's the leisure division. And I spent two days and something like 40 different presentations introducing people giving these pitches. And within the shopping mall industry traditionally food and beverage and entertainment may be added up to five to seven percent of the mix and in some malls maybe as much as ten percent and within the next ten years food beverage and entertainment is going to add up to more than forty percent the shopping mall is not going to be a shopping mall it's going to become an experience mall where you go eat where you go experience products like Tesla cars or like what Lincoln Mercury has done or what Amazon has done, where you're not necessarily purchasing a product, but you have a chance to experience a product. If you really think about an Apple store, Apple doesn't care whether you buy something from the store. They want you to buy something from Apple. If you go to the store just to play with it a little bit and then you go online to buy it, it works for them. That's what the stores are all about. So you're going to go... Exper- test drive center. <laughs> you're going to test drive experience products. You're going to experience food and you're going to experience life. And you're going to experience life both in a physical recreational way because there's a demand for that. And you're going to experience life in a cultural way because tour- cultural tourism uh, far surpasses almost anything else that we're doing in tourism these days. So I, Journey has it right. And his model is still works. His model of, of not putting the weenies directly at the ends, but making people have to move through a space to explore the space. It's called it the journey curve. Yeah, yeah. The quality variety surprise that pulls you through that space. I, I still think that 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 functionally is that functionally still works really really well. Yeah. Well, it's always you know obviously a, a subject that's close to my uh, my heart. I did my graduate thesis on the idea of uh, Disney urbanism and postmodern kind of 
influences beyond the berm yeah, uh, yeah. at Disney parks. And, and uh, Jordy's one of those guys that definitely took the show on the road. But uh, w- any thoughts in terms of the influences of that holistic placemaking and spatial storytelling on, again, real-world environments, uh, whether it's in hospitals, uh, you know, our cities, the way that we you know, have a higher maybe expectation of placemaking. Yeah, we all get to blame Walt Disney for that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is. It's, that's what's really the reason I wrote the first book is I wanted to understand that, that theme parks were having such an influence on stuff outside the berm. I wanted to understand the DNA of uh, uh, the DNA of a theme park versus the real world. So that's where I came up with my, my theory of uh, the messy vitality versus the lack of visual contradictions in the real world. We have messy vitality, you know, not everything lines up. The signs don't all line up. The buildings don't necessarily all line up. That's actually a good thing. It, it keeps us alive, awake. We're aware of our surroundings. It can be very intriguing. That's messy vitality. If you have too much messy vitality, you can feel threatened, uncomfortable, and then you start to close down. If you have too little messy vitality, you get the Grand Avenue thing. Mm-hmm. It's pretty. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. But it just is sort of lacking. And if you look at a lot of public spaces today, there's a lot of this going after the theme park. Let's say Los Angeles Live, LA Live, is to me one of the worst public spaces ever designed because it's designed to have the messy vitality is so overwhelming that it becomes uncomfortable and there's no person that doesn't make you feel like a person. It doesn't care about you as a human. It only cares about your eyeballs and what you can consume. So... Um, so that's the messy vitality in the real world. And, and as John Hench, I learned from John Hench that on the theme parks, you eliminate all the messy vitality and you eliminate all the visual contradictions. And you do that so that your lizard brain starts to relax, to shut down, and you start to communicate with people on a different level. It's why people talk to strangers in a theme park line, whereas you'd never talk to a stranger anywhere else. It's why people will walk more than 650 feet without complaining, whereas anywhere else else, they'd start bitching about that sort of thing. So, um, uh, and it's why people wear really goofy hats, literally in this case, goofy hats. <laughs> and then the moment they get outside the berm, they take the hat off and put it in the trunk and they never wear it again. They're, they're it's the too- only place that I wear my uh, cheesy Disney tiki shirts. Exactly. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, they're, 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 they have two, the spaces have two different sets of DNA. They function differently from each other. And when you're true to one, you're true to the other, you, you do well. But if you try to cross-blend them, they they tend to fail. That's why a lot of theme parks are really boring these days. A lot of the public spaces, you just sort of pass through. Um, So that's, that's that's my take on how I look at the world. This episode was brought to you by MyStudioSpace.com. My Studio Space is a group of fun and thoughtful online professionals who want to make you happy by simplifying and personalizing your website with powerful and cheap web hosting and domains. If you're not web savvy, talk to My Studio Space. They rub off. Honest. Call 407-701-7577 or go to MyStudioSpace.com to get started. Well, I know this stuff is taking you on a bit of a global journey. Uh, not too recently, Japan. Can you yeah, share okay. a little bit about that trip, kind of the why and, and the insights there? I'm just curious. Yeah. One of my uh, buddies, Greg Dameron, we were mentioning is another Universal Master Planner. And 
I uh, was on a boat with him and asked him what his favorite theme park was in the world or what he considered the best, you know, of course, beyond the original Disneyland. And he, without a hesitation, said Universal Studios Japan. Yeah, you know, I'm having a struggle with that. I, I, I've been asked that a lot. And I would say Disneyland, but I can't say it's the Disneyland of today. It's the Disneyland in my imagination, what I wrote about. So unfortunately, it's it's just, you know, that's because Walt walked there. But yeah, I'm, I'm really hard struck now between uh, Disney Sea, which I just still, as a physical environment, absolutely love. But, um, and I guess I'll, I'll, I'll put that in context of what the story is. Um, uh, this whole this whole theme park thing for me has always been a hobby, really. So thank you for buying the books because you're helping to pay for the hobby. Um, it's always been a hobby for me, but I've been fortunate to be able to have some professional experiences with it. I got to do two talks at the Walt Disney Family Museum. I've taught a number of college classes. Um, I've been a lecturer at a bunch of college classes um, for it. Uh, then a lot of talks with the books. Uh, and I've also had a little bit of work with WDI, which was fun. And recently, Universal Studios Japan um, uh, has an absolutely wonderful, brilliant design team that gets to do, I mean, if you ever want to be a theme park designer, you want to go work for Universal Studios Japan because not only do you get to work on concepts, but there's the demand to get the concepts built. So these are really young designers mm -hmm. who are getting to see their work realized in real time before them, which is, you know, you know how that doesn't happen very often. So it's a really dynamic studio that they have over there. And they, they asked if I could come out and they recognize that Japan has no relationship, has a little relationship to Florida and very little relationship to the original Universal Studios and the whole idea of the Universal Studios and what it was about. So they asked me, because I wrote the history book of it, if I could come and just talk about the history and the DNA of the Universal Studios so that they had a little bit better understanding, a little bit better context as to why that back lots the way that it is and that sort of stuff. And they just ate it up. They were great. They were just a wonderful audience. And they um and really, really fun to work with. Uh, and, and they took me on tours of their park and they sent me off to Universal, uh, to Tokyo Disneyland so I could see it and then come back and make a comparison to them. And what I ended up picking up from it was that, uh, uh, and I'll go through all the different parks. So Tokyo Disneyland, the reason to go there is if you're old fart like me and you want old school Disneyland in the sense of everything is hyper clean, everybody's really friendly, Every If there is a line, they do whatever it takes to make that line go even faster. They'll pull more vehicles on. They'll build vehicles in front of you just to get you going. Everything is, there's the, the amount of um, outdoor carts is limited to a few, as opposed to everywhere you go, there's an out-of-place outdoor cart. Um, it's um, almost like turned the, the Dick Nunes, Jim Cora... Walt Disney standard operating procedure into a Bible. Like right. it is like that's, right. you know what? that's <laughs> it. That's right. Your audience would get it. That's it. It's 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 visiting the Disneyland of my childhood, um, and not so many years ago. And it's and for that reason alone, it's written in stone. Ten it's written in stone. Don't it, mess with it. That's it. That's it. And and for that reason alone, it's worth going to visit it. Visit it if you've ever been frustrated with the crowds at Disneyland right now or what's going on with Walt Disney World. Go to Tokyo Disneyland. It will restore restore your faith in in the Disney. <laughs> Parts. And the Tomorrowland actually still looks like the 1970s. Well, but they tore, they're tearing actually much I of know. that. That's almost all gone now. Well. 
but but it's it's yeah and as and as the layout of the park it's the kind of the funky magic kingdom layout so so in that part i don't give it high points tokyo disney sea is just it's the greatest physical environment one can go into isn't it i mean it really is it is it is just but i learned on this trip that underneath this patina of absolutely stunning urban environment is a really ordinary disney park the rides are very just Disney rides. The thrills are the Disney, ooh, thrill. <laughs> they, they don't see me just doing like a gentle rocking here, but you can't see that. Yeah, it's not, it's not, it, it's, you know, it's, it's, the, it's buried, un, un, buried underneath this facade is, is a very gentle Disney park. Now, that's not to complain. That's not to complain at all. In fact, I think that the world needs that. I, Sinbad's Voyage, I have to confess did four times in a row <laughs> i love that it's because it's it's a family-friendly dark ride with an uh alan menken song that just is an earworm and the little characters all move and, and there's like hundreds there, there of it's them. a small world it's yeah it's a small world like ride i went on it four times in a row because i just think it's brilliant i just i don't think that there's many people who have the skill to design a family-friendly ride like that anymore um it's just brilliant so uh that tokyo disney way up there but underneath and then Universal Studios Japan it's the true modern theme park it is all theme parks in the future are going to be more like Universal Studios Japan than they are going to be Tokyo Disneyland Tokyo Disney Sea. they're going to be that they get it they've hit the mix Universal Studios Japan is the perfect blend between family friendliness where they had the peanuts the Dr. Seuss uh, the Sesame Street characters and uh, Hello Kitty all in one area so they hit the, the family-friendly note that is missing at the other Universal parks. But then they've got thrill rides and, like, brilliant thrill rides, like Jaws. I rode Jaws, like, at least a half a dozen or more times, again and again and again, because it's still there, you know. And the thrill rides are real. They're, they're Harry Potter Forbidden Journey. The roller coaster that they have in Jurassic Park, which I forget the name, but it's that flying coaster. It's the best you know and, um they have they have the adventures of spider-man so they they hit the balance of real thrill to to family friendliness and they hit the right note all the way and the way that i was describing the part to them is i was describing it as that what's unusual about universal studios japan is it is a blend of both the park itself overall layout and as you walk through the park is very messy vitality. It's got a lot of contradictions, but that's right for Universal because Universal is a back lot. And if you've been on a back lot, every turn is a contradiction because every turn, it only matters the direction you're facing to get the shot. The moment you turn, it has to be a different shot. So Universal has the permission to have that messiness in the, in the park. But the moment that you decide to enter an intellectual property realm, like going off to Harry Potter or going off to the Kidlands, you go off on a spur and you're completely involved, enveloped in that particular intellectual property. You are completely immersed in that particular environment. So you've got all the visual contradictions are gone. So your lizard brain is back down again and you're, 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 you're riding a flying Snoopy ride and going, yeah, you know, this is great. And, and not being embarrassed at all about it. Like, like I just did. So, um, um, so, so I, I have to say, I, if I were to go back to Japan again, I would go to universal studios, Japan first for a few days and then do a day trip to the, 
to Disney parks just like I did. Yeah. Wow. Fascinating. Well, wow. Yeah. I know you're on your own epic e-ticket adventure, uh, <laughs> you know, in the, the, I don't know what you're calling that, that vehicle out there, but you've got to have a pet name for it at this point, that's right? Darlene. Darlene. That's, that's Darlene. Darlene. Darlene is my 2012 uh, Airstream Interstate 23-foot uh, camper van. She's jet black. She just got washed recently. Because I, I, I looking up, good. I, I upgraded say. my battery for her. We can I, see her out I, the window, I listeners. The, I can see. We're this, admiring the, the yeah, glistening. I can, I can glow. see the solar panel is getting some sun, so nice. I'm recharging my battery, which is a, which is a beautiful thing. So if I decide to go dry camping tonight, um, I decided. You know, I've done all this work on theme parks. And I and I could remain an urban planner, but it's you know I'm like Walt Disney. It's like you get bored with something after a while, and it's time to go do something else. So the something else was um, uh, I'm recreating, I'm retracing a tour that happened in 1920. In 1920, a group of automobile enthusiasts egged on by Stephen Mather, who's the guy who is the newly in charge guy of the U.S. National Park Service, uh, which was which was created in 1916. Stephen Mather recognized that for the national parks to get the funding necessary to be preserved and protected from here on out, he needed to get rich people involved so that they could urge their congressional leaders to fund the National Park Service. And at the time, rich people were the only people that owned automobiles. So they came up with this idea of creating an automobile tour in 1916 that actually happened in 1920, where a group drove around 4,600 miles to 13 national parks to connect, to try to demonstrate that we need better roads to connect to the national parks and we need better roads within the national parks. So they created the park to park highway, which went around all the national parks on the West. They did a map and they did this in 1920. They used to sell maps of the of this tour till about 1928. It was sponsored by the Yellowstone Highway Association, the Park to Park Highway Association, the Southern California Automobile Club. All these different organizations came together. So what I'm doing is retracing the steps of the original 1920 path to talk about what's changed over 100 years, what national parks have happened, what state parks have happened, what's happened to a lot of the towns that were on the map. Because I'm discovering about 10% of the 400 towns that I'm visiting so far don't exist anymore. Um, and a lot of this is on little blue highways, the little side roads. So Darlene and I... You're living the, the Cars movie. I'm living... I guess I am. I'm You're living, like Lightning McQueen I'm like in your Lightning, army, though. I'm on the road. That's right. I got the big red You're driving camera. driving Mac. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm driving Mac. So it just made a lot of sense. Instead of staying in a lot of hotels, I'm traveling slowly. So um, it's, it's Sam Van RV Adventures. I uh, have a YouTube channel. I have a website, samvanrvadventures.com. I'm going to be doing the Facebook and the, all that kind of stuff. And it's it's slowly driving through the United States. And it, when you're ever on a road trip and you always see those little brown and white signs that say this thing's over there, I'm actually going over there <laughs> and I'm documenting that and I'm telling you about it. And to date, it has been wonderful. I have discovered all sorts of great things. I have discovered the Rosie the Riveter National Monument, where it is a celebration of those who stayed at home on the home front to help us win World War II in Richmond, California. The Port Chicago Memorial, where a bunch of um, African-American um, 
crews got blown up when bombs um, uh, were accidentally fell in the loading dock because their white officers were betting on which crew could load the tra- the, the ships faster. Um, uh, I've been to uh, three different internment camps that the Japanese were put in during World War II. On a more happier note, um, I went to the Sakazawiya Center where they had a tribute to seamen, the dog that was Meriwether Lewis's pet dog that walked the entire expedition of Lewis and Clark, and they have the world's greatest dog park behind it to celebrate dogs on travel. Um, The Museum of America, out in the middle of Nevada, I think it is, that has the weirdest collection of stuff you'd ever seen on four acres. Um, So so I'm, I'm doing this drive. It has no end date. This I, I gave up my house and my apartment, and I'm living full time in this thing. So it's been it's been a blast. Been doing it for about eight weeks now. Wow, and getting work done. I've I've written. I'll have a book coming. I'll have a book coming out. Uh, the book is going to be called um, Wind, Water, Time, and Pressure. Uh, which is uh, that's the that's the title of the book because those are the the four fundamental f those are the four fundamental qualities that change everything. If you are out in the boonies long enough, you recognize that wind, water, time, and pressure can change absolutely everything. And whether you're doing it on a physical level or you're thinking about it on a mental level, um, it's it's a it's a it's a great way of understanding the world that we're living in. Well, I'm pretty sure that everyone listening has kind of gotten that I wasn't kidding when I said guru when you when you've got people saying like flow like the water you know (laughs) yeah grasshopper how many times have you been driven driving across the country and you see the sign and it's it announces some amazing thing and you you just don't have time to go and do it this is uh this is a dream to be able to see some of these places that really are they're both history and they're a place that's going to describe to you something far bigger than the life you're living. It is. And it it is, you know, and after a while, as you're driving along, you start to see patterns of communities, you know, different communities look a little bit differently. Um, And I'm also having fun, just the whole idea of the whole van life, the whole RV life, you know, living this whole minimalist life, living in a much smaller space, having, you know, my backyard three days before I forget, this is a blur now. I was at the top of Joshua Tree the other day. Um, now I'm here in Lake Elsinore. Um, uh, Beautiful Lake <laughs> yeah, Elsinore. But, um, uh, I, I spent one night on Pacific Coast Highway mm-hmm. just because I was bored with driving and I just pulled on the side of the road. There was a bunch of other campers. So I knew I could park the night over there and, you know, button myself up and spend the night on the street listening to cars whizzing by. <laughs> but late at night, there are very few cars and I've got the ocean view that was right out there. Um, so it's, it's, it's great and it's allowing me to touch base with community. I'm certainly talking to a lot of people I would have never, ever talked to that are out there. I'm meeting a lot of people from not from the United States that are out there during the summer. So I'm, I'm, getting, to, I'm getting to touch base with America a, a lot. And, and I'll have a lot of stories about the different cultures of RV life as well, too. So if any of you are fifth wheelers that are out there and you know what I'm talking about, you're all crazy. <laughs> just want to let you know, you're the mad men of RVers. And I'm going to say the mad men because I've never seen a really very many fifth wheeler women. Now, women, you're all putting campers on the back of your pickup trucks. That's what I've seen. But I won't get into much more of that. That'll be for <laughs> It's definitely podcast. a culture. So there's there's uh, these little cultures. Culture. There's the van life people like me. We're, we're the extra strange people, like I think, <laughs> out there. We're the new hippies. It's extreme. So how can people find out about that uh, and follow you on your RV? 
RV adventure. Please do. I have a YouTube channel up now. WW. Uh, it's it's a, it's the Sam Van RV Adventures YouTube channel. There's www.samvanrvadventures.com website. So go there and subscribe. I'll have a Patreon page that's supposed to be going up here fairly soon, so that you can subscribe, and I'll be sending you um, I'll be sending you updates as to where I'm at, uh, and and you'll even have a chance for very little money you'll have a chance to not only help me do this by subscribing to the premier vip quality area but you'll get your name in the book as an acknowledgement and you'll get an autographed copy of the book when it comes out too so that'll all be on the patreon page when that when that comes up so what an interesting contrast to be you know we talked about you know kind of the urban to to rural or urban to natural transect, you know, in urban planning and to, to be essentially living this life of, of being out there in the, the most beautiful pieces of nature and creation uh, on the planet, but then to actually get to collaborate in a sandbox thinking of the, kind of the, this urban future that in a way is almost like a return to uh, kind of That's a Garden great. of Eden kind of state. Uh, I know for me, it's been a little bit of a dream getting to collaborate with you on this and yeah, and to, to do a special project like this that, you know, I, I think I drew my first future city when I was 12 or 13 years yeah, yeah, old, yeah. you know. And, um, and I, I was building little dirt cities in the backyard, my mom reminded me of. Yeah, so, yeah. I think I went right from, yeah, Legos to, uh, yeah, drawing these. Um, and uh, uh, for information on our uh, GTech project, uh, granttown.org. Uh, is a kind of an in-progress website. Again, can't wait to share more in the future. Uh, but again, Brilliant what a stuff. pleasure and a privilege it is to, to collaborate in this uh, amazing sandbox with you, Sam. Thanks so much for Thank uh, you. sharing your story with us today. <laughs> that was a great interview. Sam is a really smart guy. I mean, he knows a whole lot about both the history and really where the world's going as far as urban planning. You think? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, and and we got a chance to go out and get into his airstream and check it out. Uh, uh, Darlene, she's a beautiful van, but uh, he's he's really embarking on an I adventure. I think he's got like a little mini portable uh, Epcot on on wheels, basically. <laughs> yeah. Literally, it's just really a pretty state of the art, uh, uh, you know, technology. And and um, one of the fascinating things to me though about this epic journey that he's on right now is um, again that idea of uncovering the story you know behind uh, some amazing places um, you know even as you're on that road trip every place has a unique um, story there's a, a unique sense of place that almost uh, you can distill if you really stop and and, and discover and discern and almost like a, a winemaker you know distilling a fine wine out of out of grapes um, there there is definitely a skill to that um, and uh, it's not just being a um, you know, wandering man, you know, kind of yeah. that classic yeah. road trip kind of thing. Um, and it's so I can't wait to, to, yeah, dig in and follow Sam on uh, the stories that uh, he's going to be able to discern and tell. Yeah, we'll be able to watch his videos. And then when the book comes out, be able to really dig into what's going on in America, uh, both in her past and currently in all these different places. Well, we better get this diesel damsel back to the dock or else we'll be paddling home, Mel. So until next time, thanks. The Themed Attraction Podcast is hosted by Freddie Martin and Mel McGowan. Our guest was theme park author and urban planner Sam Genoway. You can follow Sam's incredible nationwide road trip adventure at samvanrvadventures.com and almost anywhere on the social web, that's YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, whatever, by searching for Sam Van RV Adventures. 
Get access to more stories and interviews at themedattraction.com, the world's most comprehensive site on theme park and theme park attraction design. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and uh, YouTube. Just look for themedattraction.com. Connect with Mel by email via mel at storylandstudios.com or follow him on Twitter at Mel McGowan and Instagram at Visioneer. You can find me at freddymartin.net and follow my adventures at Skipper Freddy on Instagram and Twitter. Our theme music was composed by Rob Watson. Other music provided by The Lost Dogs. This episode was designed and produced by the one and only Dr. Barry Hill. Find him at barryrhill.com. You know, Mel, Barry can weigh up to 700 pounds and leap over 20 feet, but we're only about 15 feet away, so he'll leap right over us. Thanks for listening, folks. <laughs>